Have a seat. And um, if you need an outline, I have in the past given you outlines with blanks in it so you could fill it in. Just to keep the confusion down a little bit, I'm just giving you a blank one. You can fill it out how you want to. I have some, um, and we'll put it up on the board, kind of a, a little bit of a skeleton outline, if you will, just to kind of help keep you on track. But Exodus chapter 25, and last week we talked about the, um, the necessity of the tabernacle. Why study the tabernacle, basically, was the, the point of last week. And of course, uh, we said last week that one of the main reasons for studying the tabernacle was because it's a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. And we want to know everything about Christ that we can learn about him. And so we're going to look at all these different things in, uh, in the Old Testament in particular, but it all relates to the New Testament as well. And so before we look at all the types and all the spectacular furniture and all of those other things, I want to point out a couple things tonight about the tabernacle that just shows the importance of the tabernacle. And of course, in Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 8, we kind of used this as our jumping off point last week as well. But it says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That word sanctuary is just a dwelling, a tabernacle, if you will. And so my good friend, I, I think, um, actually, he was one of the ones that Brother John mentioned in reading that letter to the Whitakers, uh, Tom Amanza. He's a pastor in Pennsylvania. He and I grew up together. He did a big series um, when he was an assistant pastor at a different church on the tabernacle, and he actually took all of the information that he had put together for that series and put it in a book. And he gave me a copy of the book, and I was reading through some of the different things and kind of using it as maybe a little bit of a supplemental thing to what I was putting together. And, uh, but he, he kind of wrote some of these things tonight and um, brought out some very good points that are going to kind of be the basis for what we talk about tonight. I was ready to move into the furniture and, you know, talking about all the types and pictures and all of those things. And uh, some of the things that I came across in what he said started growing and getting bigger as I studied them out. And so I'm going to turn that into a whole lesson tonight um, that we'll talk about the importance of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, honestly, itself was just a tent. I mean, it, it was, it was a, you know, as a matter of fact, the word tabernacle means dwelling or a tent. And that's obviously especially in the Old Testament. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, and during those 40 years, everything was movable. It had to be. They couldn't, you know, set down bricks and all that kind of stuff and build a house and then the next morning pack it all up and leave, so everything had to be mobile. They were nomads for practical purposes, and so uh, the tabernacle was an earthly temporary residence. In fact, turn over to, to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to have you turn to a decent number of verses tonight. Uh, we're not going to be all over the Bible, but Hebrews chapter 9 is actually a tremendous chapter in the Bible that does a lot of comparison um, between the tabernacle and Christ and all those other. There's so many types, there's so many pictures in Hebrews, um, and many of them actually talk about the high priest and how Jesus Christ became our high priest so that the high priest no longer has to go into the Holy of Holies. And I know you recognize these terms. We're going to talk about these things in quite a bit of detail over the next few weeks. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 1 actually says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now that's not the term worldly like we talk about today when it's talking about you know, something that's sinful or something that's trying to be like the world. Worldly literally just means that it was made of perishable materials. It was made of earthly materials. It was made of things that were going to go away. So 
What is the importance of the tabernacle? That's what I want to discuss with you tonight before we move into talking about some of these specific pieces of furniture and the types, the pictures that they represent uh, in the New Testament. So number one, let's talk about this, the tabernacle versus the temple. Now, obviously, you have heard those terms. The tabernacle is, is a far cry from the temple. Uh, both of them pictured Christ, but they represented two completely different aspects of Christ's ministry. And obviously, we're talking about types, we're talking about pictures, but the temple represented Christ when he will come the second time. The tabernacle represented Christ uh, when he came the first time on Christmas night. Well, he didn't actually come on December 25th, but when he came on Christmas night over 2,000 years ago. And so, obviously, one was temporary, one is going to be permanent. Uh, after all, it was the tabernacle that was made first, and then the temple. So we see Christ's first coming. And then obviously he went back into heaven and now his second coming is going to be a permanent coming. But the tabernacle was temporary. It was, it was mobile. They had to be able to move this thing around. And there was, there was laws and rules for how they were supposed to move it and everything else. But the same thing happened when Jesus Christ came the first time. He was only here for 33 and a half years on this earth. And while he was here, he didn't dwell in one single place. In fact, he didn't even have a place to call home. The Bible says the son of man hath not where to lay his head. He had no house. I mean, obviously, he had places where he was able to stay with people and things like that. But the, the temple, on the other hand, was permanent. And when Christ comes again, he's going to be here forever. So we can kind of see the difference in the pictures, the types just in the temporary uh, tabernacle and the permanent temple. Uh, but also, the tabernacle was erected by a prophet. And when Christ came the first time, he held the office of a prophet. But the temple was constructed by a king. And when he comes the second time, he's going to be the king of kings. Lots of pictures here. Lots of pictures between the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, the number five, and I was doing some reading in a book called Numbers in the Bible. Uh, it was written at the end of the uh, 1800s. It was a very old book, but the number five is prominent in the tabernacle, and that number five represents grace. And obviously, when Jesus Christ came the first time, uh, his ministry was all about grace. But the number 12 is prominent in the temple. The number 12 is actually the number of governmental perfection. Um, and so when he comes the second time, he's going to be here to rule his kingdom. You remember that the, um, when he came the first time, obviously the disciples were so lost. They thought that Jesus Christ was coming to set up an earthly kingdom. They thought that he was going to be here permanently. And even after he died and rose from the dead, he came back from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we hear them asking the same question. All right, you're back. So now are you going to set up your kingdom? And he said, no, that, my kingdom is not of this earth. But when he comes back the second time, he will be coming to rule his kingdom. Now, the tabernacle was built in the wilderness. When Christ came the first time, he was born and laid in a manger, right? He was, he was raised on a carpenter's bench. He ministered with nowhere to lay his head. And when he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. But the, tep the, the, te uh, the temple was in Jerusalem, the city of kings. And when he comes again, sound the trumpet. Lift up your heads. He's coming. He's coming to reign. Look to the throne of grace and worship the king of kings. That's the difference between the tabernacle and the temple. I think I see one other one as well. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. The tabernacle was, was humble. It was, it was ugly for all, for all practical purposes. There was nothing beautiful about the tabernacle. Um, it was unattractive in its outward appearance. And by the way, that's exactly what... Now, the Bible does never, doesn't ever say that Jesus was ugly, but in Isaiah 53, it said there is no form nor comeliness that any is going to desire him, 
right? What does comeliness mean? It means beauty. It means handsomeness. There's, uh, could you imagine, and I, and I know I've mentioned this before, but could you imagine if Jesus Christ came to this earth and he was this, you know, head and shoulders above everybody and, and really muscular and, you know, just a chiseled jaw and all that stuff. I mean, there would have been a lot of people that followed him because of the way he looked, because he was kingly, because he was this, oh, this great warrior that we want to follow. I don't know exactly what Jesus looked like. Nobody does. But the Bible says there was no form nor comeliness about him that would make anybody desire him. So you want Jesus Christ, you're going to want him for who he is and for what he's done, not because of the way he looks. And that's honestly exactly what we see with the tabernacle. Uh, but the temple was magnificent. And when he comes, again, Christ will be exalted. Do you, do you realize that in the book of Revelation, we don't find the words meek or lowly or humble or uh, obedient, but you find what the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11 and 12. Worthy is the Lamb to, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What a day that's going to be when we see Jesus, right? He's no longer going to be a lowly servant. He's no longer going to be obedient unto death. He's going to be the King of kings. He's going to be the Lord of lords. He's going to come in power and glory and wisdom and blessing. And he's going to be an exalted king. You look at how Jesus Christ is going to come back in the New Testament, it's going to be a magnificent sight, unlike his first coming. And the same is true of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was nothing to look at. The temple, on the other hand, was just filled with gold and golden vessels and just a magnificent structure. The temple is to us what the tabernacle was to the Israelites. We're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, they were looking forward to and still are looking forward to his first coming. Uh, the Jews, by the way, do not believe and do not read and do not in their Bible have the New Testament because they don't believe any of the New Testament. They don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so why study the New Testament? Why read the New Testament? It's all about Jesus, and he's nothing to them. He's not the real Messiah. They're looking for the first Messiah to come. And many of them didn't recognize him when he came. Tom told a story, uh, and he actually wrote it in this, in this book, and I, I know his brother, um, Brian, pretty well. He was actually, he was my brother John's age, uh, so he was a couple years younger than me, but he went into the military uh, not too long out of high school, and he served a tour in Iraq with the U.S. Army. He was on a train coming home to Indiana. He was wearing his uniform, and so um, this, this guy came up to him and started talking to him, and thanked him for his service and all of that stuff. And he said, uh, you know, they just kind of struck up a little friendship. Brian started talking to him about a few of his personal interests and told him that he liked Notre Dame football and everything else. I mean, we grew up just outside of Notre Dame. And so, um, you know, it was only natural for him to follow Notre Dame football and everything else. So they talked about that for a little while and everything else. And, and so this guy, you know, Brian, they started kind of opening up to each other. And Brian, Tom's brother, said, uh, you know, the guy started asking him about his experiences in Iraq. And he said, you know, it, it, there's, uh, obviously it is what it is. There's a lot of shooting and everything else. I mean, he saw a lot of people get killed, and I don't think he actually, I don't know if he actually saw anybody uh, on his own side get killed, any of the U.S. Army members that were with him. But he said, you know, one of the things that really irks me the most is you have these people in power that are the ones that are making the laws and the rules for combat when they've never even been in combat. They don't even know what it's like. And the guys, you know, obviously was very interested. And then he said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, just things like, you can't shoot until you're shot at. He said, that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, 
there's a lot of people out there that are trying to kill us, and if they get the first shot off, we may not have a chance to take a second shot. You know, he said just things like that. And so the guy asked him, he said, well, what do you do then when it comes to those kind of things? He said, well, we just adopt our own rules when we're out there, you know. They don't know what's going on. We're the ones out in the field, so we adopt our own rules. And they laughed about it and everything else, you know, kind of carried on a little bit. And finally they got to Indiana, and they were getting ready to get off the train, and they had spent most of the trip together. I don't know exactly where this guy lived, but he lived kind of in the same general area. And so as he, he was going to get off the train first, and so he handed Brian a business card, and he said, hey, when you get settled in, look me up, and I'll, you know, I'll, we'll get some tickets, and we'll go to the Notre Dame football game together. He said, hey, that sounds great. So Brian, after the guy stepped off the, uh, uh, off the train, looked down at the car to see who it was, and he read his name. And underneath his name, it said, U.S. Army Brigadier General. <laughs> he was telling all this stuff to a Brigadier General. Well, the guy was in civilian clothes, so he didn't recognize him, you know, and he was so busy talking to, you know, about all this stuff. Uh, and that's a, that's a funny story, you know. I don't, I don't know what happened after that, but... Uh, you know, the, the fact is that Brian didn't recognize this brigadier general in civilian clothes. And I think that's a lot of what happened, um, you know, when Jesus Christ came. God Almighty, clothed in flesh, came to this earth, and they didn't recognize him as the Messiah. They didn't recognize him in civilian clothes, if you will. And there's a lot of verses that talk about that, but 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, God was manifest in the flesh. Philippians 2, 7, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2, 17, was made like unto his brethren. Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son made of a woman. John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek literally means tabernacle. You could almost say, or when God was tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. Now, Matthew chapter 1, and you don't have to turn over there unless you want to, but Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22 is a very familiar verse to us, but this talks about exactly what Jesus Christ came for. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is what? God with us. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, and they didn't recognize that that's who it was. And they rejected him. God has always had a yearning to dwell with man. And you look at, you know, when Adam was in the garden, God came down and dwelt with Adam in the garden. He communed with him. He spent time with him. And, of course, it was man that turned his back on God. It was man's sin that broke that fellowship with God. And, of course, you know, Adam was the first. Adam and Eve were the first. But we'd, we've done the same thing. We have that sin nature. But God still desires fellowship. And it was God in Genesis chapter 3 that actually came looking for Adam. It was God who came looking to dwell once more many years later in Exodus 25 verse 8 when he said, make a tabernacle that I can dwell with my people. So there's a lot of differences between the tabernacle and the temple and a lot of pictures that we see between the tabernacle and the temple. But then let's talk about this, number two, because we have to make this clear, which we have done to a certain extent. But the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place. God designed a temporary dwelling place. When the tabernacle was finished in Exodus chapter 40 and verse number 34, we read this, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, it's so simple an act, but God moved in and dwelt with man. But his dwelling place was only temporary. After that, we have the 
the temple. After the tabernacle, God chose to dwell in Solomon's temple. And of course, David wanted to build that, but God wouldn't allow David to build the temple because he was a man of war. He was a bloody man, as the Bible says. And so David spent uh, a lot of the later years of his life gathering all the materials and putting the gold and the silver and all of that together so that Solomon could take that mantle and build the temple. And Solomon did exactly, I mean, he, he built it exactly the way that God uh, wanted it to be built. But we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, that after Solomon had built the temple, he dedicated it to the Lord. And the Bible says this, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. So you have God dwelling in the tabernacle, then that's a temporary thing, it goes away, and then you have God dwelling in the temple, but that dwelling place was also temporary. After Solomon's temple, in, in all its beauty, was destroyed by the Babylonians, Zerubbabel came to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple like God commanded him to do, and God was, was in that, but, but that dwelling place also was a temporary dwelling place. Um, after Zerubbabel's temple, we see King Herod building a temple. And by the way, the temple that King Herod built was actually much greater, much uh, more costly than Solomon's temple. But the difference is God didn't commission, God didn't command the building of Herod's temple. Um, compared to Solomon's temple, Herod's temple was far bigger, far grander, if you will. Um, but God didn't order that temple to be built. And so besides that, the Bible clearly states that God's temple was already here in the very person of Jesus Christ, and the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him, talking about in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, we didn't need Herod's temple. God never commissioned or commanded Herod's temple because Jesus Christ was here and God was in Christ. He was God in the flesh on this earth. Christ himself said in John chapter 2 and verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. Right? But this was the God man. And even though this was the God man, the temple of his body was only a temporary dwelling place for God as well. Because we see what happened. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. But after 40 days, he went back up into heaven but not without leaving us a new dwelling place. And of course, God's new dwelling place is in the hearts of believers. God's new dwelling place is in the hearts of Christians. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4, if you will. I just want to look at a couple verses here. But can we not see the heart of God as he was drawing nearer and nearer to the heart of man? You have a tabernacle, and then you have a temple, and then you have another temple. And then you have Jesus Christ, and then you have the hearts of believers themselves. And we're going to get into a little bit more of this as we go on throughout this series, because there's so much, uh, there's so much there when it comes to God wanting to dwell with us. But Galatians chapter four and verse six, and because says, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. First Corinthians chapter six and verse nineteen, very well known verse that we quote often, what? Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? So consider that for a moment. God dwells in us. God lives in us if we're Christians. But that dwelling place is also temporary, and it only lasts as long as our temple, this flesh, is on the earth. We die, we go into the grave, 
But God is ultimately going to establish himself an eternal dwelling place. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what began with God coming down to dwell with man will soon end with man going up to dwell with God. And that's for all of eternity. And the very first type of this promise was this tabernacle that we're talking about now. God coming to dwell with man in the form of the tabernacle. Now, let's, uh, let's look at one more thing and we'll be done. Uh, but the tabernacle proves two things. And I want to look at those two things and then we'll be finished up here. Number one, God wants to dwell with man. God wants to dwell with man. And we looked at that briefly, uh, that that's what God's desire. Now, Satan has a way of getting into the minds and the hearts of people and fooling them into believing that God's abandoned them or that God doesn't love them or, uh, you know, that God wasn't there for them. But the truth of the matter is found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commended, God gave his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who else has died for you? Who else has purchased your eternal redemption. Oh, there's, other, there's people that have died for others and that have died in their place. But that was just a temporary giving of life. Yeah, for one person. Exactly right. What about dying for the whole world and for all of eternity? No one else has done, for that, ha has done that for us. And his love is seen in the tabernacle. Because if you think about this, he could have chose the streets of gold, but he chose the dusty ground Think about where God dwelt in the tabernacle. He's out in the wilderness. He, he could have had an imperial palace, but he chose a portable tent. He could have stayed in a, in a celestial kingdom, but he came to a barren wilderness. And when the Messiah himself finally arrived, he reflected the image that was cast forth by the tabernacle that we're talking about now. And instead of king of king, you know, kings and princes announcing his birth, he was born in a lowly stable. He had shepherds that were announcing his birth. Instead of beds of ease, he was laid upon bales of hay. Somebody said it like this. Instead of angels ministering, he served amid poor disciples. Instead of heavenly comforts, he had no place to lay his head. Instead of the Lion of Judah, he was the Lamb of God. Instead of life immortal, he chose the old rugged tree. God loves every single one of us. And one way this is seen is in the fact that he wants to dwell with you. If you're in 2 Corinthians 5, go in the next page over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 16. The Bible says this, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants to dwell with us. He says this in Revelation 21 and verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God wants to dwell with man. But the second thing that the tabernacle proves is that his dwelling place is dependent on your desires. His dwelling place is dependent on your desires. A friend of mine's parents had recently remodeled a house and he was actually passing through. He was only going to be staying a night or two, and they were excited to show him this house. They were going to use it as a house that they were going to rent out and everything else, and so they said, you've got to see this house. We, we're all done with it. It's beautiful. They went over there. They showed him the whole house, and he agreed. My, you did a great job on this thing, and they said, well, 
I'll tell you what, you guys can stay here tonight with your kids. That way you can have your own place and everything else. And he said, you know, it's beautiful. You guys did a great job on it. But honestly, I just want to stay at your house. You know, I mean, it's beautiful what you've done here. But this means nothing to me. Being home means something to me. Being around you means something to me. You know, and, and honestly, he could have stayed in a brand newly remodeled house. But the truth is he didn't want to stay there because he simply wanted to be with his family. It wouldn't have mattered if they had old, outdated furniture. It didn't matter if they didn't have a lot of food in the house and all of that kind of stuff. He just wanted to be with his family. And that's all God wants is to be home with us. You know, but I think that a lot of times what happens is many of us say, you know, I've, I've prepared an apartment for you at the church. We've got some beautiful pews. We've got some nice chairs. It's comfortable in there. You can come and stay with us on Sunday, but I'm going home to my house after that's over. You know, there's not room for you and, and my pleasure. There's not room for you and uh, my job. There's not room for you and fill in the blank. God doesn't want to visit you in your nice apartment. He wants to dwell with you. And so when I say that his dwelling place is dependent on your desires, God doesn't want to make appointments. He wants to live with you. But he's not going to do it if you don't let him. He's not going to force himself in there. He has to be let in. The Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 8, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. Do you know who has to make the first move? Us. Draw nigh into God and he'll draw nigh into you. He's not going to force himself in there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Let me bring this closer to home for a minute. Maybe God's been trying to move in recently. Maybe God's been trying to help you with your marriage. Maybe he's been trying to help you with your finances. Maybe he's been trying to uh, comfort you in some kind of loss or, or whatever, but he's uninvited. He's not welcome. You won't let him in. The old cliche says, let go and let God. And that's what every single one of us has to do. Oh, he desires more than anything to dwell with us. We have to let him. God yearns to dwell with us, but do you desire to dwell with him? I know I've told this story before. It's been a little while, but there's a young man and his bride, and they quickly left in a 1950 Chevy pickup truck after their wedding. This, was, this is years ago. I mean, 1950 is a long time ago. The truck was not, I mean, it was not in 1950, but it was, it was in kind of that era. And the man was driving. His new bride was scooted all the way over. Those old 1950 Chevy trucks had a big bench seat on the front. And... Uh, in fact, I almost wish they would come back with those things. You know, my first car was a 1991 Ford Crown Victoria. That thing was a boat, but I wish I had that thing back. It had a, it had a V8 in it. It had a 5.0. You could squeal the tires in that thing. It had the same engine as a Mustang in it. I got that thing for 500 bucks and a case of Mountain Dew. That's what I bought it for when I, uh, first year in college. Uh, anyway. This new bride, his new bride, was scooted all the way over against him. He had his arm wrapped around her and everything else, and they pulled out of the parking lot. People were throwing rice and all of that kind of stuff and covered the truck, and they went on and lived there happily ever after. Well, 25 years went by, and on their 25th anniversary, they decided that they were going to go back to that little old church and see, you know, they had moved out of the area, but they wanted to go back to that little old church where they had gotten married, and 
see what it looked like and just kind of relive the memories as they drove into the parking lot and everything. Well, they drove into the parking lot and the pastor that married them was actually out in the yard doing something at the church there. And they pulled in and uh, he recognized they were still driving the same truck um, or they, they drove that same truck back just kind of, you know, their little drive down memory lane. And the, the guy was in the driver's seat. The wife was kind of sitting on the other side with the window rolled down. And, you know, they pulled up in there and, and introduced themselves to the pastor. And immediately he recognized him. He said, oh, I remember you guys. Uh, I remember doing that wedding. I remember when you pulled out. He said, boy, uh, uh, I tell you, 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 quite a difference in the space between the two of you since you left the last time. He was kind of making a joke about how close they were sitting when they left, you know. And the wife kind of turned to the husband with a little scowl. And she said, did you hear him? Even he sees it husband turned to the wife and he said, honey, I'll tell you one thing, I haven't moved. And that's exactly what happens in our relationship with God a lot of times. Well, God's just not as close to me anymore. But I'll tell you what, God's still in the same place. We're the ones that move away slowly but surely. And before we know it, we're not even anywhere close to him anymore. But he still desires that closeness with us. He still wants to dwell with us. We have to let him dwell with us. In seasons of life where God seems far off sometimes, perhaps it wasn't God who left. Sometimes it's us. All the times it's us. God doesn't leave. He'll never leave us or forsake us, the Bible says. So next week, we're going to move into the tabernacle itself and start to discuss the furniture, start to discuss the significance of, of all those pieces of furniture. And I've got all kinds of pictures and things. And um, actually, what I've, what I've been able to find that I think is, is very interesting is, is actual... Um, pieces of furniture, not just diagrams or pictures that people drew up thinking that, you know, this is maybe what it looks like. Um, I actually came across a, a Jewish website um, that they actually still, at least for ceremonial things, use these pieces of furniture. Um, and then obviously across the, across the world, there's several recreations of what this whole tabernacle would have looked like when it was all set up. So I'm going to try to show you some pictures of real things and, and show you not just some artist rendering of it, but what it actually probably looked like and what they at least picture that it looked like today, the Israelites had the same thing to go off of. They're just looking in the Bible to see, all right, make it this dimension, that dimension, make it this size and should look like this and all of these other things. And that's exactly what they've done to recreate these pieces. So it'll be an interesting study. But I just, I, I want us to understand the importance of the, the tabernacle. It's such an important thing, and mainly because it has so many representations of Jesus Christ and so many pictures of who Christ is and what he wants to be with us and for us and through us, if we'll just let him. I'm looking forward to it. Now, I'm going to mention this again on Sunday, but I'm going to take one week off next Wednesday because what I want to do, um, a lot of you have been asking questions about you know studying the Bible, and I mean, I think it's tremendous, and I don't want to... Um, uh, miss out on an opportunity to help you move in that direction. So what I'm going to do is um, show you how to use eSword. eSword, it's, it's online, so you have to have a computer or you have to have a, a tablet or you can, do, for that matter, you can do it on your phone. Uh, you can get all of that stuff on your phone. But what I'm going to do is actually go through a Bible study. I'm going to take a topic and I'm going to show you how to study out that topic using eSword. Esword is completely free. Now, I think if you put it on an iPad or a phone, it costs a couple of dollars to download it as an app. But if you were going to put it on your computer, laptop, any of those kind of things, you can get it completely free. And it's got a lot of commentaries. It's got, I mean, so let me put it to you this way. I used to have a whole bookshelf full of books. 
that I don't even use anymore because everything is in that e-source. Commentaries, I think there's probably 15 or 20 free commentary sets on there. Um, you have Knave's Topical Bible, you have Strong's Concordance, you have Webster's 1828 Dictionary, you have lots of different things that are on there that are all free. And what I want to do is show you how to use it so you can become better, hopefully, at studying the Bible. Uh, a lot of you have asked questions about that, and I'm, what I'm finding myself doing is showing a lot of people individually. So rather than showing everybody individually, I'll try to do, um, try to do it with you all together, and we'll do an actual Bible study rather than just me showing you features. We'll actually study this out, and I'll show you how to do that. So we're going to try to do that next Wednesday. So we've never done this before, but if you have a laptop uh, that you can bring or you have an iPad that you can bring, I think it's going to be the best for you to actually go through this study with me. So as we show it on here, you can do it on yours so that you've actually done it once. Uh, we've never actually brought a bunch of computers and everything to church before. But eSword, e-sword.com, I think is what it is. If you can download that sometime this week between now and next Wednesday, that will save you some time when you come in next week. Uh, but I highly recommend it. There's others out there. There's some that are better than others. Um, like Lagos, I think, is one of them that has a ton of stuff, but it's not cheap. This is free. Um, they do have some things on there that you can download that you can pay for, um, but most of these things are so old, they're in the public domain, and obviously the older they are, usually the better they are. So um, uh, they've been tried and, and tested and proven, and that's why they're still around. So I'm going to help you with all of those things next week. We'll try to go through it fairly quickly, but I'm going to do a study at the same time so you can see this is how you use it, and this is why you use it, and this is how you can study out a particular passage or topic or whatever it is, okay? So we'll move into that next week. Let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you that we have the Word of God. I thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country where we can study the Word of God, where we can gather in fellowship around the Word of God. God, I do pray for those that are not here tonight. I know there's several that are always here that are not, and so I, I pray that if they're sick, they'll be... Uh, they'll get well. If not, then God, I pray that whatever the situation is, you'll work it out for them. I pray that you bring us back here safely on Sunday. I pray that you give us a good, uh, a good Sunday for our anniversary, that we'd have some people in here that are not saved, that can hear the gospel and accept you as their Savior. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be the witnesses for you that you want us to be. Thank you for everything that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.